0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Harvard Innovation Lab. Um, This evening, we have Michael Scott back uh, for what uh, I count to be uh, more than 10 times to present his Startup Secret seminars. Um, Thrilled that you guys are all here this evening. Um, Tonight, Michael's going to be talking about turning products into companies. And uh, without any further ado, I want to turn it over to Michael. So thank you all for being here.
1: Thanks very much, Neil. And uh, I hope that we'll have a lot of fun this evening, as usual, because we've got two great guests. So I'll get quickly into introducing them. But I want to give two minutes' background on this evening's session. So, as you know, Startup Secrets started as a course that would help people who have not had the chance to go through an experience of starting a business to find out what's it like and what are some of the things that you might want to think about. And it's a uh, program that's really designed around the idea of having a framework rather than answers. The framework being a basis for you to investigate the right areas and the case studies and examples that we bring being examples that hopefully will stimulate you to see what comes into practice when you're actually doing your own business. But as we did that framework one of the things that kept coming up is that people start in many instances with an idea or a product and I know a lot of you are in that category here this evening too. And when you start with a product and you've got an idea about how you might build something a lot of questions come up that are unique to you as a perhaps a developer or have you think of yourself as a product designer or perhaps just an entrepreneur who's trying to go after a new marketplace and so this evening session specifically came out of all the questions I've been getting or we've been getting as uh, a stream of consciousness for people who are trying to take their product and turn it into a company so with that let me introduce our two guests Uh, first of all We're lucky enough to have Greg Favalora. Greg, if you'd like to just stand up and make sure people know, welcome here. Thank you, Greg. So, Greg is actually gonna give us a story that I feel is very moving because he's brave enough to share all the challenges he went through of having developed a technology that really struggled to find its market. And because of his learning and experience, he's obviously gained so much, and he hopes to share that with you in a way that you can step through that experience hopefully without some of the challenges that he went through over many years. And then we're lucky enough to have a multi-time successful entrepreneur and founder who we've been who just recently backed again, John McElhinney. Um, Welcome. So John is um, most recently CEO of uh, Belmont Systems but is going to give us the case study on SolidWorks. So what do these two companies have in common? Actually, a lot. It turns out both of them are involved in the 3D world. So with that said, let's jump into the mainstream of tonight. So which do you have? Is it a feature, a product, or a company? Now, maybe you don't think of this question, but as a VC, this is exactly how almost every entrepreneur that approaches us quickly gets qualified. And uh, interestingly enough, tonight, we're going to think about is 3D something that's actually a feature, a product, or a company? And we're going to have two examples about it. But what I hope you will get a chance to do is start to ask yourself the question in terms of how you frame your own idea. Is your own idea just a feature, or something you really believe could be a big product, uh, or more importantly, something that you're willing to invest your life in to build a company? So how much you go about doing that? Well, let's start off with a challenge to each of you. There are five things I've put up here, messaging, photo sharing, check-in, and directory. Um, I'll give you a clue. Each of these has turned into something. So I just want to start by asking anybody in the audience, is messaging a feature, or is that a product or a company? What does anybody think? Feature. Feature. How many, let's have a show of hands for feature. OK, lots of uh, features on this. Actually, quite a lot, lots of people saying features. OK, how about those who think it's a product? About another, um, I don't know, 20% or so, OK. Who thinks it's a company? very few people. Okay. So we'll see about that one. Okay. Just, uh, we'll, we'll bear in mind what you said. I'm going to ask a question about, um, let's see. What about check-in? How many of you use, you use some kind of check-in when you go to a location Have you met, is anybody a mayor of something? No, no. Sure. Show sure of hands for a mayor. Any, any mayors here? We've got one mayor. Only one mayor. Can't believe it. Come on. This is a social group. All right. Uh, is that a feature, a product or a company? Feature. Feature lot of feature anybody think it's a company <laughs> <laughs> okay but does that mean it's a company just because it is today does that mean to say it's going to be a long-lasting company all right I've, I've uh, already tipped my hat here clearly everybody's onto to the Foursquare one so messaging a lot of you said that you thought that was a feature about a third of you uh, but messaging is all that Twitter does basically they took SMS and moved it online and guess what there's quite a lot of people who use that so maybe we now Have a different view of that. It's it's uh, it's certainly a product, and I would argue that some people think it's going to be a very big company. We don't know yet, of course, and and we could could turn out. Now, directory. I mean, a directory of friends. If somebody said to you, "Okay, that's all I'm going to do is give you a directory of friends," you probably wouldn't have thought that would become a billion-user network called Facebook. And that's part of the challenge of this. If you look at any one of these things, they might start as a feature and turn into a company. Now, one of the ones that I didn't talk about intentionally, I didn't quiz you on, is photo sharing. But I can tell you, I would never have expected photo sharing to go from zero to a billion dollar valuation in a little company called Instagram at the pace it did. So how did that happen? I mean, did they just get lucky? Or was there something that they did that was right? Or maybe it was a combination. So these are the things that I think we want to investigate tonight. We want to try to figure out what is it that makes some of these just a feature and some of them into a real company. My favorite example is this one. When the iPad was first announced, there were a lot of people who just wrote it off. Oh, it's just a big iPod. It's going to do nothing significant. In fact, it's staggering that you know, Apple could come up with such a crazy name. You know, it's just like, how could this possibly be anything significant? It's become the most successful single consumer device ever. It's changed almost everything we do. In fact, we now talk about the post-PC era because of the rise of the tablet. And what was going on there was probably something that every one of us hopes that we'll have, which is somebody had some vision, which by the way, in Jobs's case, he, he declares that he never even asked audiences about it, uh, to say that things would change if you gave all these capabilities to people into a magical device. So some people have this in, in a very you know, visionary way. Other people have it in a very disciplined way. The point is there are probably all sorts of different ways and no one answer that you could turn up a feature into a product into a company. But, whatever happens, I do think it's worth stepping back and trying to figure out what can we learn from those things. So, you know, shift happens. That's my polite way of saying it. Uh, And we're going to hear that story uh, from, you know, Greg, because he has some pretty good examples of, you know, what it takes along the way. And what I really want to point out here is that, you know, you might have a great idea as you start the initial process of building your product or company. But things change dramatically, markets in particular, and the pace at which they change sometimes is phenomenal. For example, the mobile world is probably the fastest changing market segment I've ever seen, just by virtue of the adoption curve that it's on. So during that period, what you don't want to do is obviously find yourself dropping into this gap where you've p- developed something fantastic, but unfortunately it doesn't take off like the iPad. And you're finding yourself now you know, with a lot of investment behind you, maybe your life, uh, worse still your life savings, uh, and you just don't have the either momentum or the chutzpah to get across that gap. And I will tell you that's probably mm, at least two-thirds of the companies we see in the venture world. They just never get across that. And this is not a crossing the chasm only thing. This is a significant gap that we see in terms of the way people approach how they even start out you know, building their product. So I want to bring this to life right away by inviting Greg up here to share with us uh, how he encountered his challenges with his original invention. So Greg, welcome, good to have you up here.
2: (coughs) Hello, hi, it's nice to meet all of you. I'm Greg Favalora and uh, I'm going to tell you a five minute version of what is usually a hour long story when told uh, in other venues about inventing and almost commercializing 3D displays when this process of tech looking for market starts out kind of awesome, and then becomes painful, and then it becomes this patent sale a whole 12 years later. Uh, and by way of introduction, th- so th- this was a previous chapter of my life that ended about three years ago. My day job is helping to run a product engineering consultancy up the road in Arlington that does lens design, everything from the Xbox Connect to um, toys. So this was our product. Um, The company, Actuality Systems, which was based in a number of places, it started in my apartment in Central Square, then moved to Reading, then moved to Burlington, then moved to Bedford uh, before we collapsed, created this device that looked like a crystal ball. For scale, I show it there in the corner with a uh, Sharpie pen. It would create imagery that looks like a hologram about the size of a basketball, or actually about the size of a head. And it would create floating 3D images that you could see without having to wear those glasses that you wear at the movie theater and see it from any point of view all the way around. For example, here's a picture of uh, a cancer patient who's doing very poorly. Uh, he has a brain tumor and is laying down looking up at the ceiling. In, after eight years in existence, we thought was the best use of this technology was planning uh, cancer treatment uh, methods using external beam radiation oncology. So it's a complex product, and I won't really go into it in much depth, haha, except to say uh, it worked by shining thousands of patterns of light onto a rotating screen really quickly, uh, 10,000 times a second. And that took quite a few technical miracles to work out. So this is sort of the one slide of uh, my little lesson to you tonight. Uh, The overarching lesson is that even if you have an, an awesome product, you really do need to deeply understand at least one market where warm-blooded, actual human customers will write you actual checks that you can cash in a bank, and you need enough money, more than you think you need, especially if you're working on hardware, to make the thing so that it really works well. It always takes more than you thought. <sighs> okay, so this is a painful tale. So at first, uh, uh, we figured that if we built this hologram, and mind you, this is something I was obsessed with since I was an eighth grader, entering this kind of stuff into science fair contests. Uh, we thought if we built this amazing thing, people would buy it. Uh, so we had some guesses about where, who would use it. I mean, we're not completely idiotic. We thought at first it would be extremely useful in mechanical CAD, which is the relationship to the other speaker tonight. We thought that customers could save tons of money if uh, you could do virtual prototypes out of light instead of wasting money on interim prototypes, rapid prototypes, or what was then the first 3D printing bubble uh, back in the late 90s. Anyway, we focused on this epic task of building this device. Uh, It turned out with insufficient funds. So in phase one, in 1997, when all these dot-coms were getting money like barbecue sauce portals and like weird chocolate bar things were raising tens of millions of bucks, it took me two and a half years to raise a measly one and a half million bucks uh, from angel investors. And it was so hard, me and my friends working in a basement, like I said, in Central Square. It got to the point where I, I talked to, I think, 40 different venture capital firms, a ton of different angels. I just needed a million and a half bucks. I finally got one guy to say, yeah, yeah, I'll give you 100K, uh, but you have to raise another 300K before I'll write that check. So at least he was the first guy in, or first gal in, so to speak, and then I can do my first close. So the technology problem was at the time, I was coming out of college and grad school where I had a gadget that looked nothing like what we were trying to sell. I had this thing that was like scavenged pen light lasers, 64 lasers from those things that you used, that I ripped apart and put on a board. And then I, I was bribing these uh, Harvard physics lab uh, uh, machine shop people to like make them for me after hours. And then I had this like spinning mirror and a spinning little piece of plexiglass. And it kind of made like a little thing of HIV enzymes float in the air. And, and it was so insane that we weren't getting any money. So finally, I introduced myself uh, through a lot of work to this guy, Poe Bronson, who, if you were around in the 90s doing startups, you would have heard of Poe Bronson, who wrote an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal saying, isn't anyone making anything anymore? And I was like the poster child for that. It was, here's a kid in his basement looking at HIV. Why isn't anyone writing him a check? And that's what it took to finally get that first uh, bit of money. So uh, a lesson there was about having chutzpah. Like, you you just got to be hustling all the time. An example of hustle in the late 90s was have an envelope of information about you on your person at all times. So if you have a chance to, like, accost Larry Ellison before he gives a big talk at Harvard or someone like Poe Bronson, you could say, hey, let me do a favor. I'll take you to the airport. But can I just tell you about my startup? Okay, bye. Because then, like, after the talk, everyone with lesser guts than you accosts them, and you've kind of missed your chance. So I'll stop talking about this first phase in a moment except to highlight the technical difficulty. It was a 100 million pixel display. Who cares? Well, that's 100 times more than most displays. That's probably a one or two million pixel display. It was the highest resolution display ever built. And oh, by the way, it was a hologram. And to make it work, you basically needed like dilithium crystals. You needed this thing called DLP, which is a little semiconductor chip that only TI made. And TI is the biggest pain in the butt company to work with that you'll ever find and we had to beg them for years to give us this chip, and oh, by the way, there was no data sheet, so we had to reverse engineer how to talk to this thing. Uh, so that sucked, and we're only six people. But I got my million and a half bucks, and we got an office, and hooray. So in phase two, um, this is what my board lovingly called the many-year fishing expedition looking for a market. So we had raised maybe another eight or nine million dollars or so, in a series of rounds. They brought in a mature grown-up to run the company who came out of Silicon Valley, places like McAfee and Netscape. And he looked at this really kind of weird prototype that we had that sort of barely worked and he took on the task of let's sell this thing. Let's see if people will write checks for this gizmo. And they did. We had a lot of research labs who wanted it, a lot of grad students who so thought it would be cool to do three-dimensional graphics on it. So this kind of brings us to the second or third or whatever lesson which is Listen really carefully tonight when he teaches you about what a whole product is and what the distinction is between a little component, like a spark plug, and a solution, or a big thing, like a car. Uh, For example, in our case, we had a display that would connect to a computer either from gigabit ethernet or this thing called SCSI. That probably only half of us here remember what that is. And and an API. So an API is a way to talk to this device. But that assumed that the customer was really smart about computer graphics programming, meaning like only a handful of people in in America. So I had just enough money to place this one bet, which was, okay, not only does my software team need to completely reinvent how rendering algorithms work and how to draw a display device in cylindrical coordinate space, which no one had ever done before, let's use our last remaining pennies to build what's called an OpenGL API. That way, if they have a well-behaved graphics application like SolidWorks, or a thing that shows pharmaceutical designers some molecules on the screen. They plug in our software, plug in a display, and boom, whatever they were doing continues to work while a hologram of all this stuff floats in the air. And that got us a lot of the way there. Uh, but it uh, was also this beginning of a long, painful story for us. So the very condensed version of what happened was We did what our mentor said and what any smart person would do, which is to figure out a market, go to a whiteboard on the horizontal axis, write the names of market segments, things like mechanical CAD, pharmaceutical design, luggage scanning. Remember, this is like just post-2001, military visualization, porn was really never on the list, and that was kind of weird anyway, Uh, video games, oil and gas, uh, and a couple other things like that. Then on the y-axis, you write the 10 biggest accounts you could think of, or the accounts that you could sort of reasonably hope to get into. And you talk only to those accounts. You work your tail off trying to get into those places. You might have to write letters. You might have to sit on their doorstep. You might have to fax them, if you know what faxing is. Uh, or send these little brief emails. And we could talk later about what a good email looks like. And that's some supplementary material available to you guys after this class. In none of those cases... So, sorry. Here's a seduction that'll trip most of you up. In all of those cases, they said, this is the best thing ever. Your parents must be so proud of you. I want 10 of these. And you say, great, write me a check. It's 100k." And They go, oh, I don't have $100,000. Can you, like, show me a paper explaining why it's worth $500,000 so that my check will kind of earn me 400k in profits? And I'll say, no, I'm really sorry. And so you go on to the next market. So the lesson there is, if you're going to go waste a whole ton of money on engineering, Make sure you don't just know the names of markets or the workflow of those market segments. Understand who would be writing you a check, why they would make money from writing you a check, and so on and so forth. Really map the living heck out of this flow of money. Uh, and as an engineer, I have this sort of anti, well then when I was younger and naive, anti-salesperson, anti-marketing bias. I thought if you're not using diodes or writing code, you're just wasting my time, go away. And that a good salesperson was just like, usually like a guy you know, who had like a hairy chest and like this big necklace and stuff. Oh, I was so wrong. When I started doing marketing and sales, I realized this is really hard stuff. So it would have been much wiser if I and if you had budgeted some money for a really good marketing person. And by marketing person, I don't mean at first writing ad copy, even though that's valuable. I mean someone who does product marketing, someone who could really deeply understand a customer and really define the market that that customer buy into and then do the all-important, almost as important as a CEO job, of betting the entire company to write something called a marketing requirements document that defines what on earth the engineers and their crazy cubicles have to make. So several lessons in one there. So what happened? We failed to identify that market. At the last minute, by the way, we did realize it could help uh, cancer patients, but none of the venture capitalists we talked to in 2006 or 2007 cared. Some of them understood medical devices, some of them kind of sort of understood displays, but no one understood both. And I'm sure we had a lot of missing pieces that they wouldn't tell us about, but that's another topic called, if they don't hand you a term sheet, they're saying no, uh, but they never say no. Phase three, I'm almost at the end here. Uh, We brought in yet another CEO after a very horrifically scary year where I was the CEO of a company of 20 people who I didn't hire. Uh, We raised a little bit more money, and our CEO said, Greg, man, I love this display stuff. We got to stop making displays. No one's giving us money, but we know about drawing pictures of cancer and we know how to do fast processing on this thing called a GPU. And I know a lot about prostate cancer. I know. Let's convert the company into one that will write machine vision software to help radiation oncologists plan a very prevalent form of prostate cancer treatment called brachytherapy. Uh, It's gruesome and it's like a squeamish kind of thing, but essentially it's about a third of all prostate cancer patients get this. If it's early stage prostate cancer, we put a hundred little seeds that are radioactive into the prostate, which is about the size of a walnut, and it's really not visible too well on ultrasound. And we thought we would cure that problem. uh, And we almost sort of did. And to get there, I had to completely pivot. Man, I hate that word. And pivoting for us meant forget your photons, forget 3D displays, forget holograms, you're going to go to your physician, get like 10 vaccines so you'd be allowed to sit in in these really bloody scary procedures at like Brigham and Women's Hospital and stuff and watch all these things. And we learned a lot and it didn't help because in 2009 the market tanked. (laughs) So there we were, we had raised 15 million, which seems like a lot, but it's not over 12 years. All that was enough to do was make a product that just barely made a 3D image. And then year after year we just, we called it putting lipstick on the pig, just improved it a little bit but the core of it was kind of bad. Furthermore, we never figured out the market. So I urge you to raise more money than you need, especially if you're selling atoms and photons rather than bits, and really understand the market. So what happened? So in 2009, our CEO left. He said, Greg, I'm expensive, I'm gonna do you a favor and leave. Good luck to you, try to go close some deals. I looked at the books and realized I had one month of cash in the bank, so I pleaded to my employees Uh, can I just pay half as much and maybe help me put these things in boxes onto eBay?" We called up. And you ever wonder, like, what do companies do that go out of business with all this stuff? There's a website called CleanOutYourOffice.com, and these two guys show up silently, like with this red carpet, and they kind of come and they take everything away silently. It's like the dude who fixes problems on that Tw- Tarantino movie, uh, Pulp Fiction. And and they're cool because at least they share the profits with you, and that helps you do something but we never threw away the patents. My board was smart enough to one day insist that I file 100 patents. That turned into 30 patent applications that turned into 20 patents, and we held on to those. And I tried to sell them, because I thought I should go down with the ship or at least try my hardest for these 70 angel investors that I had. And I got a job, because I have a family. We tried for a year and a half to sell these patents, and everyone said no, except for one publicly traded company, and that was awesome. And we worked for months. My wife and I knew all our financial problems would disappear if we could just sell these, these patents and then the week before signing, what happens? The president's gone from that company. So I'm like, oh my God, and I became like depressed. This stuff happens, and no one wants to talk about it. You get depressed, because you think everything's solved, and then like the trap door is pulled under you. Uh, But our patent broker, and I could teach you about patent sales later if any of you care about that stuff, said, Greg, yours is not gonna be the first patent portfolio I don't sell. We're gonna keep doing this. So he kept at it for another six months, Finally, we got an offer from a company. with. And when a deal is going to happen, it happens. Like it just There's no hemming and hawing. The paperwork gets done, and it's done. So just a couple weeks later, this thing was sold. So I had a small exit from it. My CEO had a small exit, and we wrote little tiny checks, you know, a couple dollars or a couple tens of thousands of dollars to people who had given us millions, but it was non-zero. And uh, that, that gave me some, some sort of refreshing uh, pause there. Anyway, if what I have said in the previous X minutes resonated with any of you, uh, Michael is making available to you all the full like, 60 slide epic of this with a lot of tips on things like how to close a sale or what books to read to write your own patents and things like that. And that'll be on your website. Thank you.
1: I don't know about you, but the most important thing that I heard at the beginning was this one word. There were a lot of this going on in the audience, just wow. Is that what you do? You create a 3D display? That's just incredible. And so that was my first reaction when I was listening. I was at an MIT class where Greg was presenting. I was like, good God, that's an incredible invention. And if you think about that invention, there just must be many, many applications for it. Yet 12 years later, as Greg has just taken us through, there are a lot of challenges to turning what was a breakthrough technology into a business. And so tonight, the goal I'm going to try to you know, bring to light is, how might we have helped Greg um, if we'd had him in this class you know, 15 years ago? And that's what this is all about. This is like, how could we think about things before we trip into all the challenges? So Greg, thank you for teeing that up so beautifully. That was, uh, was an awesome job. So here is the product-company gap. And actually, um, literally, I think there are so many things that could fill it that to just relate it back to our startup secret series, there are three in particular, obviously, that I, I would focus on. There's the go-to-market, there's the business model, and there's the execution. And I'm gonna focus on just literally pieces of those that I think will help you tonight. And I'm gonna do so by bringing uh, John up here later on to talk about the SOLIDWORKS story. This is SOLIDWORKS's product that John and his team built, and that is the company that they built that ultimately became part of Dassault Systems, and you can go past that building anytime you want by the uh, uh, Waltham Reservoir there. So, This stuff on the other extreme can work. And so what's the difference between these two stories and what can we learn from both? We'll hear John at the end so that we don't steal all his thunder. Now, the first thing I hear from almost everybody that I'm trying to mentor is, it's all about the product. Well, it may be. I mean, certainly if you think about what I hear from most entrepreneurs, Apple just creates such amazing products they're going to fly off the shelf. Well, we're going to look at that a little bit, because it's always Apple that I hear people refer to. But here's one of the things I want to point out to you that's important, because it's something that you need to know in advance. When you first start your business, 100% of your expenses almost invariably are in engineering. It's everything about building that product. But then it changes to expending money on proving the market acceptance. And, and you could hear in, in Greg's case, that started a little bit later than you probably would have wanted it. You know He mentioned he obviously wished he'd got a marketing person sooner, in particular a product marketing person, to do that product market fit. So it starts to flip what's interesting is that as you start to repeat and scale sales and marketing literally flips to being all the expense of significance so I'm just gonna ask you how much do you think as a percentage of R&D sorry percentage of sales Apple spends on R&D anybody just like give me a number 5% okay 510 I heard over here anybody more than 10 any bids Anybody more than ten? Okay, so somewhere between five and ten percent. Okay. What do we think they spend on sales and marketing? Way more. Way more. Okay.
0: Yeah, because marketing is all. If you, if marketing is your pipeline. It's about pull. So you have to create awareness to have a pipeline, and you don't, without a pipeline, you don't have a business.
1: Thank you. I, could you come join me for the second half? <laughs> kind of useful. I think we're going to have a good spokesperson here. That was great. Absolutely right. So here is the latest set of financial statements. You can go download these from Edgar's anytime you want. They actually spent 2% on R&D, a shockingly low no number. Now, it's not a low figure because they're a big company. But 2%, just think about that. It's triple the amount in SGNA. and And this is very typical. This is not just Apple. This is Rohit's company, Demandware. Public company, but was a startup here in, in uh, Massachusetts just seven or eight years ago, well actually nine years ago, I should remember, it was there from that day, where we had 100% of our original spend you know, on the product team, give or take. And now uh, we're headed towards a place where even in DemandWare's case, we will be twice as much, uh, we'll be spending twice as much on the sales and marketing, and that's not including you know GNA. So this is a very typical flip that happens. And in general, I would like you to think about this. You're going to try to build a product where you can reduce the cost of all that SGNA. The more effectively you build it, the more specifically you, for example, intersect the market, and the more friction you take out of the go-to-market process and enable your customers, uh, then the more likely you are to have a successful business model at the end of it. So what if you thought about this like an architect? And you planned right up front and said, we want to end up being a very profitable company where we know we make 20%, drop it straight to the bottom line, and we want to have a product that's going to fly off the shelves. How would you go about building your company? And how would you go about building the product to make that uh, experience the case? So that's what tonight's really about. This is our agenda. Um, And I'm going to try to get through at least the first two sections fairly fully, and then cover at least one piece of of the last piece. And what I want to talk about is how we can develop value, and validate it uh, as a product and then how we can design it to fit the marketplace and uh, introduce a couple of terms that will build on some of the things that I know people here use a lot like minimum viable product and again I see some of you snapping pictures and stuff Uh, don't worry all this is up on my site Uh, in case you haven't seen up the top you can just go to uh, MJScock.com this will be up there literally live uh, as you walk out of here tonight so let's start with developing foundations the thing that I hear most is you know, people obviously want to try to build something highly valuable and usually with some kind of a, a notion about what they're going to do to solve some kind of a problem. And then they want to validate it. And if you're doing all that right, then obviously you're probably on to a winner. But there are lots of challenges in that. The first thing I'm going to try to do is help you extract the most value from it. So when you start your development, you could just develop it all yourself. Or you could think about how could you develop the minimum viable product And then even less than that, only the piece that is your core value. Now, I cover core as part of my business model session. But basically, it's the notion that you literally only build what is your exceptional capability. So in Greg's case, he had this capability to, to, for example, create a 3D image. But displays, that wasn't a core competency, right? I mean, Texas Instruments had that core competency. And he ended up being dependent on them. That's another story. But you want to try and find out what it is that's your core piece. And John, for example, will talk about that when he he comes to tell you tonight about what he's doing in his new company. Then to develop faster, I really recommend you think about things that are changing in our world. We didn't have this when I was building products, but crowdsourcing is a great way to build products. You know, When you go to put up your website, is that your core competency? I I doubt it. Go use Odesk or Elance or whatever for your landing pages or or create some basic uh, wireframes using you know, people who are probably a tenth the labor cost of what's in here in Massachusetts, in Estonia where I was last week. There's lots of places to do this stuff effectively. And then find ways to be just smarter in terms of how you co-create things. This is a whole section unto itself, so I want to give you at least a, a clue to it. The first secret I want to give you is something that I see the really good startups do over and over again. They don't build everything as though the only customer is outside the building they immediately start thinking about how could they build on themselves. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you know you've got, for example, a multiplayer—sorry, uh, multi-level product, for example, let's say you've got a design tool that is used to customize your e-commerce site, why don't you do exactly what we've done now at Demandware? Create a platform that your internal engineers actually use to build your product on. Why? Because immediately you're creating a customer relationship, even though it's an internal customer for your product. You're forcing yourself to see whether your internal engineers can actually use your platform and whether that platform actually is going to work when you now expose it later on to the outside world. It's such an obvious thing to do, yet I see very few companies do it. The good ones make this really quickly a part of their culture so that they're always thinking about how do we serve the customer? How can our platform be more open, more extensible, etc.? So be your own customer. And then on this open extensible thing, if you've got a core that's really tight, think Linux and all the various different pieces that have got built around it, then make it open and extensible so other people would do things like add drivers to it, which would have been wonderful if, if uh, we could have taken Greg back and said, hey, Greg, what if you'd been able to do this OpenGL thing from day one? Would that have made a difference? Yeah, would Yeah, I mean, he, he right away, once he got that, was able to interface with other products that had the standard. And he said something very important there, which is, he also made open APIs, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. And then, you know, we have a world which is full of communities now building open source. Literally, millions of lines of code that's available to you free. Why not access it? Don't build everything. If you can avoid building it and just use other people's uh, developments, then leverage that. Uh, the largest community in the world of open source happens to be a company I'm lucky enough to back called Acquia, building on Drupal. There are over 1,000 people who contributed to building Drupal 7. It's the largest open source community in the world. And there is no way that Drupal would be as successful as it is if it wasn't open source because nobody could possibly develop all the features and functionality that's required to move at the pace of the web, to do everything from integrate with Facebook at one extreme to PayPal at the other extreme and in between with CRM systems. So this is something that's very fundamental. So before you jump into building your product, think about how could you build it effectively and very efficiently with all those kinds of ideas smarter, faster, better, cheaper, effectively. Then the next thing is value. I would say this is the challenge that that I'd want you to to, uh, think about. Maybe even step one, in fact. Before you even build your first feature, what problem is it that you're solving, and who are you solving it for? And how significant is it? Is it really, really important? This is the subject of a whole workshop in of itself, the value proposition workshop. But I'll just say something that's so critical to the thinking here. Remember when we first heard Greg's invention, we went, wow, 3D. That's huge. I mean, that must be enormous. We, we all inherently think you know, things must be 3D because we live in a 3D world. But 12 years later, you are still seeking the market, right? I, I want to ask you a challenging question because I know is uh, Gordon here from MIT? Gordon, did you join us? Yeah, he does. Great. Um, Gordon is is uh, not to, to pull you up out of the blue Gordon is somebody who's, who's looking at developing a 3d product and I know you're advising him do we know what market there is for 3d yet <laughs> seriously I mean it's it's a big challenge yeah go ahead so uh, yeah, sometimes
2: people ask me well if I had the money to do it right or the cheapo technology to do it again what market would we look at as far as I know the only successful uh, auto stereoscopic display market are these handheld gaming devices the Nintendo 3ds and maybe viewfinders for 3D cameras. But I still think that given a cheap enough core technology, all of the markets that we were looking at become open again because the barrier to sale is much lower, and they might buy it for a novelty, or maybe I'll get lucky and have a return on investment. So I think that's, sorry, question. But uh, I just want to add one, one point before you ask that question. So um, a real difficulty we had through the life of the company in assessing if a market was a good fit was that for visual products, we couldn't figure out how to demonstrate an idea or get meaningful feedback unless we built the thing. Right. I couldn't figure out how to send a smart marketing person in to ask questions, because invariably everyone would imagine liking a hologram, but it wasn't until they saw it that their answers became meaningful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the paper prototype didn't work in your case. Right. This is the thing that I want to get uh, clear, first of all, is that if you don't know what problem you're solving and you're not clear that it's valuable, we're in trouble right there and so this is why we don't want to be in the situation where we just invent technology or find some breakthrough and get all excited about it and in particular what I want you to try to do even before you go anywhere near building your minimum viable product is just ask yourself this question do you have a problem that if you solve it is really valuable because a minimum viable product is irrelevant if it doesn't solve a valuable problem and to be specific viable does not mean valuable they are two very distinct things. And I see way too many people caught up in this, I've got a great MVP. But what problem does it solve? I don't know. Well, then you really don't have anything. So it's this valuable piece that's so important. Now in the workshop on um, what is effectively the, the value proposition, we talk a little bit about how do you qualitatively value this. And, and my simplest recommendation to you, if you haven't watched that workshop, is just do a before and after scenario. And the before and after should answer what Greg was getting at, which is, OK, if somebody didn't have a 3D display before, and then they had it afterwards, what did that mean? Did that mean that they had some little bit of joy, or did they rel- rel- relieve some incredibly chronic pain? And afterwards, they ended up with incredible joy. <coughs> well, as you can tell, Greg did actually end up focusing on a marketplace where that potentially could have pl- panned out, which was in the medical world, where you know, literally removing people's brain tumors uh, could have been incredibly valuable. But it's not an easy thing to do this, and it's what you really need to focus on very early on. Now, we're lucky to have uh, Abby Fickner with us, who's actually just recently done a workshop on Agile Validation. Well, actually, validation. I call it Agile Validation, and I'll come back to that. But the validation piece is a very important part of this, because you don't want to guess this stuff. You want to get out of the building and figure out what the customers are uh, for this particular proposition and understand why they think if they buy this, they will get incredible joy. Now there's an important thing Greg said earlier on, which is, by the way, selling is an important piece of your validation, but how you sell and who you sell to is also extremely important. So you mentioned for example, Greg, that you sold to researchers and that turned out to not really be a big big market, right? This is a big issue. Lots of, of small companies find what might be what I would describe as the Mirage Markets. Mirage markets are all over the place. Uh, you know, research labs is a classic one. You really don't have a market until customers are paying for something. And trust me, even if you think freemium is a great strategy, we'll talk about it later on, in the end, your validation needs to be dollars. And then Greg said something really important, which is it's even more important, even when they start paying for it, to ask this question about why. Why are they paying for it? What is it that they've said, I'm going to actually spend money on this for? And until you understand that problem, you haven't done any validation. So I'm not going to recreate all the great work. I encourage you to go look at Abby's talk, which uh, gives you a lot of the great tools for going and doing this. Uh, my favorite one is still, you know, for all the landing pages and web prototypes and surveys you might do, go get yourself some prepaid customers. If a customer is willing to write you a check for you to actually deliver something, then they've probably got a real pain. Uh, and Kickstarter, for example, is you know, in effect doing that. But obviously, it's just in a little different form. It's in a crowdfunded form. So I mentioned value proposition, you can find it on the site. Um, There's one other piece for you to really understand tonight that that I use a lot, which is what I call the gain-pain validation. And that is to say, you really need to understand not just the gain you're giving your customer, but the pain they have to go through to actually get that gain. So Greg gave a perfect example of this. If, as he came up and answered that question, if 3D displays were, you know, 100 bucks, and they were incredibly easy to plug in to everything we did every day, then I'm sure we'd all use them. Um, in effect, the gaming market has, in fact, done that. They've found a, a way to make it easy enough for people to get on their Nintendo, whatever it is, a 3D display that actually gives some value, whether it's just fun or entertainment, and at a lower cost enough price. And so that's the pain piece. If, if Greg could have reduced, I see him nodding, you know, all the pain of producing that display down to 100 bucks. I mean, you probably would have opened up a whole bunch of markets, and I bet there will be some 3D markets this that will open up. Greg this would have been the Greg Center, and and maybe it will be in the future. So that's what we want the rest of you to figure out. is how do you become part of the Greg Center? So uh, the next thing I hear is, people have what I would describe as multifaceted value props. And what are multifaceted value props? Well, here's an example. One of the companies that came in to pitch us this week actually, they're already an investment of ours is selling security solutions, password solutions. And on the one hand, they sell these to e-commerce sites like DemandWare and to banks that need secure login. On the other hand, those people aren't really the customer. The real customer is the consumer who logs into those sites you know, to either buy goods or to do transactions. So They've got a very challenging problem. They've got to get both the consumers excited about their solution and yet they've got to have the merchants enabled or the banks enabled to actually make that solution really work. That's a multifaceted value proposition. That's tough. What if you could just pick a problem and say, look, if I solve this problem for you, produce, for example, a product that makes it possible for you to check interference on any engineering part you ever do in 3D, and by the way, as simply as you ever drew in 2D, would that be valuable? I guess so is the answer that, that John's going to share with you later. And you've got you know, one customer, the engineer or the designer or you know, whoever it is, and you've got one value prop. And I really encourage you, because I hear this so often, to not get caught in this. If you've got multiple audiences, pick one and find one starting value proposition for you. Okay, again, just to reduce that whole value prop section to this next piece, there are a lot of things we talk about. Uh, For those of you who've been in the session, finding discontinuous, defensible, disruptive innovation, for example, and then finding markets where it's unworkable, unavoidable, and it's urgent. But there's also one piece that I want to bring out, which is where is it underserved? Where is the marketplace um, not being well served for the problem that you might develop? And then this leads to what we're going to talk about now, how do you target that and segment it? So Greg already brought this up and um, most people talk in terms of product market fit. What I'm hoping to do in the next five or ten minutes is to show you that product market fit is not a simple thing. It's actually very important to double click on it and figure out actually go to market fit. So, in Greg's case, I think he talked about, you know, this whole idea of coming up with market segments. And how many years were you into your business when you, when you realized that this was important?
2: Well, I, we weren't all done, but, uh, yeah. it, it, so we, we listed them on day one, yeah. but we didn't understand the true complexity of a lot of them until so year three or four. Yeah. For example, the word medical imaging is actually diagnostic, interventional, and then 10 subspecialties of that.
1: Exactly. It's segments within segments within segments. And this is the thing I'm gonna encourage you to do. When you look at product market fit, don't think about your market as medical. Think about it as medical imaging and then go down into the next segment or the next segment until you can really figure out what is the basis on which to uh, target your product. So when you talk about minimal viable product, yeah, you might shrink your product down to a small piece, but it's still, unless you've figured out which segment to go after, a large area for that product to cover. And so it's all about trying to find this fit. So it's actually hard to put this up in in pure, uh, simple graphics. So I'm going to actually use the whiteboard to do this with you, and then we'll we'll use my slide afterwards. So um, actually, let me steal one of these ones here so we can keep Greg's stuff up. So the idea that I I want you to think about is as follows. If you could find a bullseye to initially target, and the bullseye was incredibly well-defined, was very tightly defined, and your product perfectly mapped it, then you would have A product market fit and if you could keep that as a consistent fit as you went customer after customer then you'd be very successful but usually what I see is this people define their MVP they say they've got this marketplace for example medical and now they go out and they start talking to customers they find one over here one over here one over here, maybe one over here, one over here. Which one do you pick? Which one's right? And if you just go down the typical process that most people go down, what they'll do is they'll start building features for this person, start building features for this one, maybe pick a few there. And pretty soon, what happens to your minimal viable product? (laughs) It starts becoming a pretty big product. It adds a lot of features, a lot of functionality. And what you've really done is just expand your need for resources the one thing you don't have lots of. You don't have enough engineers, you don't have enough cash, you're trying to actually conserve that until you get to some repeatability. So what I want you to do is this. I want you to do the exact opposite. I want you to look at every single one of these guys and say, what is their need? What's their pain? And how can I find one or two of these that line up, that actually have exactly the same pain and need? And when you do that, two things happen. Number one is, your product as you move to match those needs doesn't change. So now you don't have to expand the footprint of your product. And number two is, your roadmap for your business about how you meet those needs is completely consistent. You'll find the same channels to go after them, the same messaging and positioning, the same tactics and so forth. And I purposely drew this on a diagonal because the mistake that most people make is to say, oh, a vertical or a segment, oh that must be SMB, or maybe it's medical versus government, or maybe it's financial versus uh, you know, consumer, whatever. The reality is it sometimes doesn't fit neatly like that. It's actually sometimes completely different to that. It might be people who have a specific, um, for example, compliance need. And compliance might work across, for example, pharma and financial services. In fact, it might be anybody, just to give you an example, who has the uh, need to trade derivatives. And that's actually any Fortune 1000 company that does anything internationally. So it may fit across multiple verticals. And so the point about a segment is it may be unique to your particular product. And it may not be neatly defined. So I'll try to just show this to you on on a slide so you can get beyond my handwriting. So we're trying to avoid this stretch, this fit and stretch problem that first occurs by trying to go after too many needs that are dissimilar to start off with. And instead, what we're trying to find is a product market fit solution where every one of these uh, needs that you identify is the same and at that point you have what I call a minimum viable segment so the minimum viable segment can be tested very simply it gets tested by do things repeat without you having to change your product and change the way you go to market if they do you have found a segment and what I mean by repeat is literally customer by customer can you meet their needs And as you repeat your product, does it say the same? And if it does, you're onto a winner. You're now going to be able to continue to move this business forward without adding more cash, adding more engineers, trying to change your marketing every time you go out to market. And it's a tremendously magical thing because another great thing comes out of it. You get referenceability. You start to dominate this segment where now with one, two, or three customers who all have the same needs, who can talk to each other and say, yeah, I'm getting the same benefit as you you start to become known as the leader in this segment. And because it's not big, hopefully you've been nice and defined about it, you can dominate it really early on and quickly define yourself as being the market leader for 3D CAD CAM in whatever it might be, engineering and so forth. And that's what we want to get you to. We want to get you to a place where early on as a startup, you're starting to have traction. So I'm getting lots of hands up, so let me pause here. Go ahead. So I want to know, how do you find these pain points? And how do you get
0: these? prospective customers to talk about their pain. Okay. The, the problems that, that they
1: have. Um, I'm gonna repeat that question, but in case anybody else wants the mic. How do you find these customers and how do you find their pain points to repeat? John, do you wanna take a shot at that? You've, you've done this many times before. I'd love to tell you that it's a really
0: simple solution. It's this, it's shoe leather. Um, I, think, I think the point that Michael's making is <clears throat> there are so many people You you want to get rid of the people that that sort of show you all the buying signals. I'll share some of one of the failures of a company that I I led called CloudSwitch where right after the, the 2008 credit crisis, it was a company that was helping basically people take their data centers and extend it to the cloud. And every customer I went to, I mean, I saw buying signals like I've never seen before. People leaning in, people kind of wanting to get started, but nobody was willing to necessarily write a check. Some did. But then closed looping it, uh, people wrote checks for the wrong reason. <laughs> and so I think the, the, the answer to it is, you just gotta get out of the office and you gotta get in front of people. And so try and pick p- two or three people in a segment, in the same segment. And if two or three people sort of say no, guess what, it's probably, they, the, the worst is not the people that say no. The worst is the people that say yes. And then so you gotta grade it yourself to sort of say are they saying yes to be polite or yes they're interested are they giving you the Japanese yes like yes I heard you but not yes that I want to move forward so that's what you gotta look for and I think the danger is the danger is, is, is when it's biased and what I mean by that is if it's only you going to that customer or a couple of customers that's dangerous if you have a partner or somebody else you can have to help you kind of um, balance your view I think that's also very powerful and beneficial but it's shoe leather you just gotta get in front of a lot of people and categorize it. Same segment, different customers, different
1: different vertical segment, whatever. So I, I really think, by the way, uh, there's no possible way that I could have said that better. You really do have to get out, meet, greet, and go through a lot of kissing of frogs before you figure out you know, where your prince is. But in particular, what I do recommend is this, and I'm sure John did this in many different ways, which is create your score sheet, your scorecard. And um, it's going to ev- evolve. And you saw the way I put out you know, the dots. In effect, you want to create, every time you hear a need, try to get really specific with the customer. Ask them over and over again, did you hear the need right? What is this particular need? And what if, what if I solved it? What particular problem would I be solving for you? And then here's the critical piece. And what would you pay for that? And don't forget to ask that question. And then, if you really feel like you've got them at a place where they say that they will pay for it, ask them, okay, so would you be willing to write me a check in advance? I'm not saying you're going to get this a lot of times, but you know you're onto a winner if the answer is yes. And actually, I've started two companies where I had checks before I got any funding from customers. Michael, so can I, can I just yeah, give one, ahead.
0: I'll give you one visual to take away, because it may not be a lot of things you hear tonight, but I think this is one of the most important. Way back in the time machine, there was a company called Computer Vision. That's where John Herstic, was the founder of SolidWorks, and he and I met and worked together. And Computer Vision was getting crushed by this company called PTC at the time. And um, and Computer Vision spent, I think, probably 50, maybe even $100 million trying to build a next next generation product. And they were all over the map. And I remember John Herstic going out to San Diego and met the development team out there. And the guys that were running the project were kind of frustrated because they weren't getting any traction. They weren't making progress. And one of the guys, uh, I probably shouldn't say his name, but he, he uh, I'll call him R, because that was his first name. Uh, he said, John, what, what should we do? And I think this is a visual. I'm a visual person. Put this in your mind. He sort of said, I would padlock the door, and I put a big sign that said, nobody can come in here until they sit down with at least three customers. So th- when you ask the question about it, it's, it's shoe leather padlock the door, get out of the
1: office, and go talk to a bunch of people. Great. So just to keep us on track, I'm, I'm going to move on to the sort of follow on from this. So the, this hopefully is now very clear to you. We have a challenge to move from minimum viable product to minimum viable segment. If you do it right, once you've figured out your minimum viable product and you've got your segment sorted out, then you get a repeatable product. And you know you're onto a winner when you're starting to do that. And in, in the answer to your question, by the way, what happens is these needs need to line up. If they're over here and over here and over here, you've got your problem occurring again. And you want to be willing to throw these out in order to stay on this. So let's wrap this segment, uh, just because I want to give you enough of a a framework that when John comes up, you can see it all fit together. Hopefully you now understand that if we can get this minimum viable segment, we're going to find a way to keep your product, product footprint and resources focused, and we're going to be able to get people who with the same needs will reference each other and ultimately you'll be able to get beachhead, uh, a segment that you can dominate that will ultimately be the place that you build off. Now, there is one thing that I've also taught in the value prop class, but I wanna cover quickly here, and that is trying to find a segment where it's not just a nice to have need, it's a blatant critical need, especially if in the the business to business world. And so I'm gonna use an example that I live with every day, because mobile is so hot that I see dozens of mobile startups all the time, and they all come in and say the same thing. Well, there's a billion smartphones out there now. And so if I get 2% of that marketplace with this new app, I'm going to have a really successful business at you know, 4 bucks 99 an app. Sounds great. Reality is a little different. The reality is there are a lot of people who could potentially use a mobile app. So how do you zero in on a segment that's actually going to have a real pain point and a real cr- critical need? And this is really just designed to give you an example of it. What if you said instead of anybody with a mobile phone, you said, well, mobile professionals. Well. That's at least perhaps now getting into the business world as opposed to just consumer, but there's a lot of mobile professionals. What if you then said field workers and those are as opposed to desk workers? And what if you said people who are out in the field servicing goods uh, and products as opposed to salespeople? Now you're narrowing it down again. What if you then said servicing medical equipment as opposed to just, for example, fax machines, well, if not fax machines, geez, I'm dating myself, um, for example, you know, postal machines, Um, you know the classic office equipment Um, and instead of of businesses you said within hospitals and then you said let's go one step further that those machines were being used for critical care so now we've got all the way down to a place where instead of for example doing something that is not mission critical if these machines are not serviced somebody dies okay now I think we've got to a critical need people care about that so We've actually just taken a path that has got nothing to do with the particular size of the business or you know, particular feature function. What we've done is we've figured out where there is a pain point where you need a mobile professional who can go out in the field and service medical equipment in hospitals for critical care, where if it isn't done, people die. That's what I want you to do when you come and talk to me about building your business. Figure out where is there a blatant critical need that will have such an impact that you just can't live without it and that's what this segmentation exercise should really be about is figuring out how to both get those repeatability uh, repeatable uh, requirements but also in in an area where people really care about it now you've answered that value question that I was talking about as well which is to say if you solve this problem is it valuable so it's not just a viable product it's a valuable product make sense see a lot of people nodding so putting all that together this is no longer just product market fit it's about uh, go-to-market fit. It's about narrowing your target, segmenting it, and it's vital, as I mentioned right up front, for everything being consistent for messaging and positioning all the way through to how you deliver your product. And those of you who've seen my classes before will know that I'm never going to give up on this subject. The number one thing I wish startups did more of is focus. And as narrow as possibly to start off with, what people always come into my office and do, I've actually rubbed the diagram out, but is they come in and they say, well, we've got this big market opportunity. I'm delighted to hear that. But if you go after it all at once, it's going to be like boiling the ocean. And so what we're always trying to get you to do is think about those small segments that you can uh, dominate to start off with. And I wish that the story wasn't this way around, but most startups fail because they've tried to do too much and they end up contracting on failure. I would far rather you could expand on success, even if it is one customer at a time. And the most successful companies do that. They figure out how to build up from that success on each of those particular problems that line up one customer at a time. So because people ask me this all the time, there's a post up on my site about it. How do you get the balance between wanting to get somebody excited about a big market and at the same time starting with something very small? And uh, the post is entitled Vision versus Execution. But I keep getting more challenges about it. So uh, even with the post, I've added add to it this following diagram. Think about Greg. He had his technology breakthrough. He figured out how he could create a display uh, out of thin air, which is stunning. Uh, So he had a vision. And obviously, he went through a lot of execution to get through this. What if we'd helped Greg in advance write out a roadmap to say, Greg, over the next several years, we're going to turn that into a feature, a product, a solution for a particular marketplace that you can ultimately build a company around with a business model, et cetera. If we could have set that roadmap up for him in advance, life would have been a lot easier because he would be constantly validating. He's nodding, so I I, I must be on the right track here. And for you as product people, because a lot of product people say, well, I don't want to hear about the business stuff. I want to hear what would it mean for you as a product? It's basic things. You know, how do you get usability up front? How do you get partners and services and whole product in your product? How do you get the solution into uh, the hands of real customers that become referenceable? How do you get the market segmented when your beachheads get repeatability on it? And then how do you get to a place where you now can afford to actually involve Uh, You know the next set of engineers to build a product line that gives you a scalable business that ultimately turns profitable It it isn't actually a lot more complicated than that. There's just a ton of execution in it Um, and Along the way, you know, you'll be building a team that can do that And as actually you were hearing from John a lot of the challenge here is figuring out how to do that at scale So I give you one, you know simple view of a roadmap, and I give you one startup secret to go with it You know if you're on the right track if you always validate this from the customer standpoint. So yes, I sit in a lot of board meetings. I'm very happy to do so. But I am absolutely the most irrelevant person to impress in the board meeting. Who cares what I think? I would far rather you came in and said, here are the 10 customers that care about this, this, and this, rather than, hey, we met our cash flow forecast. It's meaningless whether you hit your cash flow forecast. What matters is that you're answering a customer need and that you're proving to me that you've moved from having just a feature to a place where customers are buying it repeatedly. That matters. That means you're moving down this roadmap. And so no matter what anybody tells you, create the basics for uh, metrics to validate along this roadmap that are external. Figure out whether it's a net promoter score which some people love and others hate or it's retention. An upsell, which drive huge amounts of value, or lifetime value, whatever it is that you want to use. Make sure it's customer-based. If you've got customer-based metrics to validate your progress or on the roadmap, you are going to know whether you're on the track to building a, a feature, a product, or a company. And so this is I'll add to that post, because people keep asking me about it. Uh, and hopefully this gives you a sense of this. All right, well, we're starting to close this gap. We have validated value, uh, not just features. And we've designed to fit uh, go-to-market But now what we want to do is uh, architect to attract those customers. And I'm going to talk a little bit about at least a piece of what uh, comes into play there which is the go to market and business model. So how do we architect to attract? Um, And basically I was trying to think of a way to explain this um, in a simple term and that's take all the friction out of it. And it's what I call creating slippery products. The notion of a slippery product going back to my gain-prane ratio is that all the cost associated with a customer seeing Uh, Trying, buying, implementing, deploying and owning your technology. What if we could take it to basically zero? Take all the friction out of it. This is the piece of the value prop uh, workshop if you want to go look at it in more depth. What if we could literally make it possible to slip into the lead? Imagine that everybody else is running on the running track with shoes and you suddenly get at your own lane now which is ice and you can just skate along it. You're gonna you're gonna kill everybody. So that's the visual I want you to have as we go through this. We want to define ways that your product can become that slippery. So what is slippery? It's a little hokey, but bear with me. The idea is that somewhere in here are some gems that you could all find that will help you move forward at uh, you know, breakneck pace as a skater. It's simple, low to no initial cost, it should install easily, it should prove value quickly, play well with others, be easy to use, the ROI should be obvious and your customers should, look, should be in a place where they can't live without it. It's that sticky. I will guarantee you that if you figure out how to do all these things, your product will sell a lot more cost effectively and that whole equation that I started with up front will be a much more profitable one for you. So let's jump through these. Simple. Simple should be simple, right? Why is it that, you know, you've all heard these quotes. If I'd had more time, I'd have written a shorter letter. Uh, I could go on and on. There's many of them. I even had a hard time thinking, how should I get simple across? So I went back to first principles. OK, well, it's the opposite of complex. And simple, if it's an advantage, means that complex is a disadvantage. OK, so how could we actually express that as an equation? And I came up with an equation, which I won't bore you with how I got to it. It's really simple. And that is that your advantage is your innovation times the simplicity. And I'll trust that each of one of you is smarter than me to figure out how this might be disproved. But I also really believe this I've tested over the years and what I see is this any innovation if it's simple enough has the potential to be adopted the more complex it is the more likely it is to run into all the issues that you were hearing Greg talk about how would you get it to integrate with something how would you get it to work with existing solutions Uh, or how would you even realize its potential and so you can find this on the website don't worry but I will tell you if you think through the simplicity of your product as the basis on which people can actually understand it and work with it, you will find that it will give them advantage. And my favorite example of this, when I first gave this talk actually a long time ago, to give you a sense of how long I've been um, you know, working with this thesis, was when Microsoft came out with their you know, entertainment center. Their remote was actually more complex than the one that's up here. I couldn't find the most recent image of it. But there had dozens and dozens of buttons. And then Apple came along and they had three buttons. And guess what? That did everything that that did. And which one was more successful? That doesn't exist anymore. This one isn't yet, by the way, a product in mainstream for Apple, but they've sold millions of units of it. And actually people use this for you know, controlling uh, their, their PCs, etc. And there are examples that people are, are finding very popular today. So, uh, How many of you remember knowledge management? I'm really dating myself now. It was a huge category. Good, there are a few other people here who do. Knowledge management was supposed to be a multi-billion dollar market. For some people it was, there were companies like Lotus Notes that got going and, and built on it. It's nowhere today because it was horribly complex for people to put knowledge management in place. Along comes Evernote. Evernote is billed note taking. It's incredibly simple. It's probably the best knowledge management tool I've ever used. Why? Because I can just access everything about it. I can capture notes, you know, take pictures, even take recordings, share it with anybody anywhere in the world, even if they don't use Evernote, on the web. Now, of course, some of that infrastructure wasn't there for when knowledge management was created. But, you know, it's obvious. If you try to go in and pitch this to somebody, that is a lot of work. That's what knowledge management used to look like when we were pitching it. And, yeah, I used to have to sell this stuff in in one of my companies. Wouldn't you rather just take out a tablet and capture it that simply? So this is why simple is so important. And I've already mentioned to you one of the key things that I recommend you do, which is really give up everything other than the core capability that you have of value as the starting point for your product. Try to reduce it to the absolute essence of what it is that you do uniquely well for somebody. And then everything else, either figure out how to leave it out of the the box, um, or more importantly, uh, figure out how to work with others to partner with them. And I think that is the essence of why so many products are successful or unsuccessful. Okay, so that's the simple piece. The next piece of slippery, L, low to no inc- initial cost. This is a favorite for consumer apps. People are always trying to find frictionless ways to get trial. I'm a big believer in if you can take the cost out of customer acquisition, that's great. Uh, and certainly, it can be very successful if it helps you identify customers or have them identify themselves because there's no barrier to them trying something. That's a, a wonderful piece of it. There's a wonderful article, for those of you who haven't read it, I've put the link up here. It was written uh, a number of years ago by the editor at, at Wired about free economics and how free is actually the new uh, black in those days, uh, that people would say is going to help you, you know, get your product to market. But I will be clear, it's not the all be all and end all. There are some real failings to it. So, uh, free fall actually is what happens to startups that just never figure out how to get beyond this. They, they realize um, that they can get lots of customers, but guess what? People are paying what, uh, sorry, are valuing it as to what they're paying for it, which is nothing. If it costs you nothing and there's no barrier to it, and, and you heard Greg give an example of this as well, then they're probably not valuing it. And the perceived value is often zero too. If you're giving something away, people don't value it as, as you know, a premium product, obviously. And ultimately, you do have to upsell these people to have a business, you know, unless you're a not-for-profit. So what's a good example that had I think has done that very well? Uh, I could have used lots here. I picked LinkedIn because a lot of people I think were really skeptical about LinkedIn. LinkedIn did this very well. Uh, initially, It was absolutely free, and uh, for a whole uh, range of people it still is today. I don't pay for LinkedIn, um, yet I get value out of it. And what they did was to give people a way to network and connect with each other that gave value, but they monetized from people who would actually use that network, headhunters, recruiters, and so forth. So for you and I, we're getting value by the connections, but for people who are actually in the recruitment business in the HR world, it's actually a network that they can tap into that they can charge for. And so what you really want to do is figure out uh, early in your value proposition where it is that you're going to monetize. And initially, if you're going to go the free route, you know, give value to people so that they will engage with it, because there's got to be a virtuous circle for people to actually engage. Uh, and then if you're really smart, figure out how to do it with some kind of virality built in. Virality is usually something that causes people to immediately take an action when they see the value of your product so um, specifically That they want to share it very quickly, and the quicker they share it, the more viral your product is. So this, uh, what I call value, uh, virtuous circle, viral network, is what you want to build if you're in the consumer world, and try to do that in a way that gives you a basis to later monetize it. But be aware that if you don't monetize it in some way, you know, free doesn't mean anything except you know you're not delivering value. So onto the I in slippery, you want products that install easily and integrate well, so that they're. They're not tripping you up. And I'm astounded how many times great innovation is built in isolation of where it's going to get integrated. It turns out this is the whole reason that enterprise software is dying. It's because people find it so hard to implement it. Have you ever heard of this term shelfware? Shelfware is because people don't think about this this particular factor. So you, you know that, so why not think about it up front? It's, again, reducing the pain for customers to try, adopt, and deploy your product. So what are some of the ways you can do this? Well, um, the strategy that, that uh, you know, Microsoft adopted very well when it, it was behind in the web was something called an embrace and, and extend. They literally went in and figured out how to embrace the web and extend what everybody else was doing. They didn't try to take over the browser initially. Uh, they were very clever about how they went about this. It was a great strategy, and, and that term's now been used many, many times. You want to try and do the same thing. Embrace what everybody has as either a business process or a product or, or infrastructure, and then extend it. And openness and extensibility has become a whole way of building products. In fact, um, I pulled this graphic out of some work we're doing in the open source world where the growth of a- open APIs is just taking off. Uh, you know, when Greg was around and he was trying to get his OpenGL API out, it was probably considered quite a big deal to have an open API. Today everybody has open APIs. There's open APIs for almost every web service you can think of. And I really encourage you, instead of saying, okay, we're going to build everything, figure out how you might integrate with all those RESTful APIs. For example, why would you ever create a payment engine? <laughs> There's many different ways that you can use payment gateways today uh, if you're in the commerce world. And uh, thousands of, of uh, different you know, merchants now accept, for example, whether it's PayPal or if you want to use e-commerce underneath it, you know, means to, to integrate that. So you don't need to build that. You can just use it, and you'll be much more easily integrated into people's workflows if you do that. And this is the thing that I really want to get to, which is a non-technology thing that people forget. There is an assumption I hate assumptions, but this is one I want you to make. Change is risky, painful, time-consuming and costly. It just is, especially uh, in the enterprise world. But it is even true for consumers. People resist change all the time. So imagine that you have incumbents, whether they're applications or their operating environments or business processes, or the biggest one of all is usually human. People just don't want to adopt new processes. If they've learned a way of processing an order, and you come in and tell them they've got to learn it completely differently, you are putting up a barrier to entry for yourself. You are creating yourself a cost. So learning, for example, to operate a 3D instrument is hard. It turns out people are still struggling with this. You know, We looked at a company that was doing haptics, again, spin out of MIT. The problem wasn't the technology. It was training people to actually use this for real applications. There's a lot of friction in that. So whenever you're building your product, think about how you might make it install easier. And the simplicity, the simple way to think about this is that products that integrate um, and play well with others encourage others to play with them. So again, because we have Rohit here, um, I will just give the example from his company, Demandware. When we first uh, were investing in the company, we knew that e-commerce was a complex area, and so we focused on building the platform. But we also knew that at some point it would become important to integrate with all of the people that are involved in, for example, auto-processing, the back-end, customer, uh, um, proce- uh, uh, customer fulfillment, et cetera, and then all of the people that, for example, would be the front-end doing the marketing, and then experience management, et cetera. So we created an open API, an open program uh, called the Link Program, and we made it possible for other people to integrate with us and us to integrate with them. In fact, we started pre-integrating all that stuff. So now when people came to buy our platform, what happened was they knew right out the box they could get all of this capability without having to do any work. That's taking the friction out. I'm not suggesting you do this right up front, but I'm suggesting right up front you think this way. You think about how might you create an open and extensible platform that will integrate well with whatever is in your customers hands. Okay, on to the the first P. You want something that proves value really quickly. How many times have you downloaded an app from the App Store and deleted it within two minutes? Anybody here done that? Lots of you. Okay. That's what obviously we're trying to avoid we want consumers to get instant gratification out of something and say hey I've got value from this let me start using it and in the enterprise it translates to something a little bit more complex but it's just as significant which is rapid payback people don't expect instant gratification but they expect payback within a three-month period would be ideal but certainly within six to nine months and not greater than 12 months if it takes you longer for your product uh, for your product to give value than 12 months you're in trouble because you're going beyond people's budgeting cycles even And in this day and age, people want results fast. So rapid payback is incredibly important. But how do you do that? It's easy to put these things up. Well, here's a tip. You can actually create self-proving value in your products. And the, the really good companies I'm seeing today build this into their products again from day one. They're actually putting in place the metrics and the visibility into what's the product that's being used for. This is from one of our companies, Nasuni with the analytics on exactly what value is being delivered by the, comp- by the product. So they'll take a baseline right away when the product goes in, and they'll show you this is how much uh, storage you were using before, for example, and this is how much we've reduced your storage and reduced your cost. So you're actually measuring for the customer right there, so they can't even avoid it, how much value you're delivering to them. Now there's no question about whether you're delivering value. It's being shown to them. So self-proving value through analytics is a fantastic thing to build into your product early on. And it will help you in your, your justification, your business case, and in many scenarios with your customers. The next thing we talked about was you know, if we're starting with a very small minimum viable product, something that's really tight, how will it build to meet real broader needs? So you, you mentioned one of them, uh, which was reliability, availability, scalability. This is not so much targeted at that. But if you have a set of functionality you want to disclose, I'm a big believer in, in doing it progressively. So that's the second P. In other words, don't confront somebody with everything, so they're literally like falling off a cliff with this huge learning curve. um, And it's just so difficult to jump into. But take them step by step through disclosing the capabilities of their product. So This might be a difficult concept to grasp without an example, so I brought one here. Turns out uh, the company I was mentioning earlier, Acquia, has a challenge with Drupal. Drupal is so broad, there are tens of thousands of modules for it. Uh, And what it does is enable web publishing for uh, people who want to turn their companies into a media company. So uh, for example, connecting with everything from your customers and partners and suppliers to your fans or if you're not for profit, to your contributors. That's a lot of functionality. So we decided what we'd do is create a product called Drupal Gardens that would literally get you live on the web designed to online in 15 minutes. That's a very different experience, by the way, than what you would have if you went to the open source um, you know uh, drupal.org and tried to put all this together and, and create a, a website in 15 minutes There's no way you do it So we did that but we also realized that the minute people did that they quickly start asking questions of like okay But I want to do things like for example put blogging on there or I want to have a community and, and enable people to connect with me so we would enable them to just turn on modules as They needed them, but not right up front. We did not give you 10,000 modules out of the box that would have been totally overwhelming and then By the way, if you get to a place where all these modules that we've put together for you simply are not enough, we go one step further. You can actually say, just export the whole thing, and now you can take any of the 10,000 modules you want out of Drupal and create your own site so that there's no lock-in. So this is a completely seamless experience. It's not perfect, but it's made a massive impact. It created tens of thousands of sites within months of launch. And through things like templates and so forth, they are just a huge plethora of sites that have been created very successfully with this progressive disclosure approach. So I really encourage you again to think about that, progressively disclosing of of features as part of your slippery products. Okay, we're on to the first E, which is easy to use and apply. And here I have an expression that I've used for years, which is Ubi. What the hell is Ubi? It's it's not something from Star Wars. It's out of the box experience, which was if you open up the wrapping and everything felt great right out of the box, you you had this amazing moment where you just would like dying to use the product. And if you notice, people even pay attention to that in packaging. in software and, and in services and so forth, have that same experience. Give your customer that just absolutely delightful experience where they want to engage with you. And you might say, well, why is this a big deal? Um, I'll give you an example that's very real. And, and by the way, simple things like templates that I just showed you for things like theming, et cetera. That's why Apple was successful with, with its, uh, you know, many of its products, is that they gave you templates right out of the box to make beautiful photo albums or, or to do things very simply. But in the enterprise world, That is the single biggest reason that Siebel struggled. Siebel went through such torture with its customers to get their their products up and running. And so it was an easy target for Salesforce to come along and say, we're just going to give them a delightful experience. It's like, no-brainer. You don't have to install anything. And right away, you can start using it. it. Costs you very little. And the experience is going to be great. And you can customize it and start adding stuff. That's why this is important. And a whole company has disappeared, in my opinion, because of this and a whole new one has emerged and it's a Goliath in our space. So this is really important stuff. Okay, on to the R. Your ROI should be obvious. So in um, consumer experience, this is probably not that important. Consumers don't think about ROI, but they still think about, you know, they're spending something uh, to get something. But in the enterprise world, it's totally critical. You need to have a quantifiable ROI. At some point when somebody starts writing big checks for you, they will ask you, for what the return on this investment is going to be. And it should either be increasing revenue or reducing costs, or maybe in your very early stages, because it's not easy to, to show ROI uh, with a, an initial breakthrough. It might be so new. It should be at least driving competitive advantage. And uh, certainly in the early markets, so that's what people look for. The visionaries are looking for competitive advantage. So again, how might you do this? Well, you can build on that idea that I mentioned earlier of, of um, self-proving value. But you can also do things like one of my companies, Unitesk, did, which is they built a calculator, and they can show you why what they do, which is desktop virtualization and the management of that, is going to generate a return for you. Turns out it's a complex problem, and they solve it, they reduce storage, they make it easier to manage desktops, which are very expensive. uh, And they can give you an ROI right out the box. And finally, you want to have a product that is sticky, that is something your customers can't live without. So it isn't a question for them whether they get up the next morning and use it again. They just have become completely and utterly uh, dependent on it. Now I mentioned that iPod uh, story up front, the big iPod. How many of you have got iPads? Lots. How many of you would be willing to give them up? Nobody. Oh, one person. OK. I need to hear why.
3: <laughs> I, I think uh, I have an iPhone and I have a Mac, and it's just sort of in the middle. So that's the one thing that I can kind of get rid of.
1: Okay. So. Apple saturated you. Fair enough. Um, You you and my wife would get along great, because I have way too many products in between. Uh, But the truth is, we have all become very much uh, dependent on, now, whether it's our phone or our tablet, as a means to do everything from communicate to entertain ourselves. And so whether we call it critical or not, it's certainly become sticky. And so we want to define products that really fulfill some kind of need that customers fall in love with, and they just don't want to give up. And so, in a nutshell, look for ways to build Slippery products that embody all of these different capabilities. And if you do, you will probably do some very basic things, like, for example, increase the gain your customers get, reduce the pain they they have of acquiring you, and end up building some interesting companies around it. So I'm going to encapsulate all of that. If you never remember Slippery or any of that stuff, it's up on my site, uh, into one simple notion. What if you could build a truly disruptive innovation that was so exciting that people had to have it, yet it had no disruption to adopt it. People do this. A little company called VMware did this. They basically found a way for you to take server utilization from in the teens of percentages up into the 80s or 90s without you changing your applications or changing your hardware or anything. They just put a layer in between that virtualized all those resources. That is disruptive innovation with non-disruptive adoption. And if you can find products and services that do this, you are onto a winner. And it's really worth spending time to do this. It's worth time to, uh, spending time to think about, how could you make this kind of impact? In, uh, in my own portfolio, I have a simple example, which is these iPads that have been the theme of our discussion tonight actually are great, except when you take them to the enterprise and you personally own the thing, the last thing you want to do is give that device over to the enterprise to take control of it you want to keep your photos and your music and all your personal stuff on there. The enterprise says, but hang on a second, I want to put an application on there that will enable you to, you know, get access to email, et cetera. So, uh, in this customer example, Estee Lauder actually wanted to use, uh, the iPad to get out and sell their products because it turned out there was a much easier way to sell than having people at the counters. And it turns out people trust iPads more than they trust sales reps when they make recommendations. Funny that. So that was driving up, uh, revenue by 40% all good. Um, but they were having a hard time actually deploying those applications, keeping them up to date, and training people until Appirian came along and basically did this via the cloud, saved them two and a half million, helped them roll out 17,000 iPads and deliver it worldwide with no IT touch. So now this is how Estee Lauder is delivering their apps to help increase their sales. And what we basically did here was give them all the gain of rolling this out with no pain associated with, you know, traditional IT involvement in this. And um, all the pain that would have been involved in actually uh, doing this, which is deploying and installing to the iPad, um, is taken out. It's all just handled by the cloud. So this is what we try to do. Now at this point, just because I really want to give John more time, I'm going to stop. But I'll tell you the the next two pieces you can find on my site. Um, And it's all about architecting to attract using packaging and pricing techniques. Uh, So I'm going to flip through these. There's a technique that is basically a simple way of doing this that you'll see. If you want to watch the go-to-market section, I describe it in more detail. And I have an example there, a case study from Acquia. And uh, even though I know you were dying to talk about whole product, I'm not going to cover that tonight either. Uh, but again, I'll make sure this is up on my site. And we'll give you some uh, background on it. So John, if you're ready, sure. I'd like to bring you up and, uh, and give you the time to, uh, to go through your piece. Great, well thank you.
0: Um, Certainly interesting to hear stories and as you were going through it, Michael, I just sort of had flashbacks to to failure moments that we had uh, at SolidWorks and also at CloudSwitch. Let me give you a little bit of a a background of who I am and I'll make sure I give enough time to to answer questions at the end. Uh, I'm currently uh, CEO of a new company called Belmont Technology. Uh, I assure you that will not be the name of the company when we release uh, the product and we go to market. But let me take a step back in time and tell you kind of the evolution of what's happened in my career and what I'm doing now. But uh, to do that, I'll go back. My, my trainings, I'm a mechanical engineer by training. I have been in the design space uh, and software world for, well, way too many years. <laughs> I won't give you the exact number, but way too many years. And it started back as a mechanical engineer at the University of Rochester. And you'll probably be able to do the math. It was 1983. I worked in the uh, laboratory for laser energetics, which was a nuclear fusion lab. And I had a summer job, and I was doing mechanical design. And the guy I was working for, this guy Frank DeWitt, realized I was far better at computers than I was design. And at that time, PCs had just come out. And so here I was using mechanical drafting board. He understood that I knew a little bit about computers. and He said, why don't you help us find a CAD system? So I had to go out and sort of learn about what CAD systems were out there. And it turns out, AutoCAD was just starting, and there was a bunch of of new software startups. Anyway, helped him uh, select a CAD system. And at the same time, we had a lot of drawings. And at that time, I don't know if people have ever heard of a company called Dbase, and we ended up basically building a a, a database system for drawings. And so here I am 30 plus years later, helping people build slash select CAD systems and also helping them find engineering information. Why? Because the pain, as Michael talked about before, is still pretty significant. So fast forward, uh, I joined a company called SolidWorks. SolidWorks, how many people have ever heard of SolidWorks? Okay, it's a 3D CAD company uh, based in Waltham now. Today, it's about a $600 million company. I joined it when we had our first sale of software. So the product had just started to come to market and, uh, and joined the company and, and had a bunch of roles there. Uh, like most good startups, uh, for those that are either thinking of joining a, a startup or are joining a startup, um, you know, you want a, good, a lot of good utility players early on. So I had a bunch of roles in marketing, sales, building the partner development uh, platform, the, the partner uh, uh, application area, and uh, we were ultimately acquired by Dassault Systems, and we ran it as a separate company, and I was the CEO there uh, from about 100 million to roughly about 400 million dollar company, and then took some time off, and then joined a company called CloudSwitch, which was a enterprise software company focused on helping people take their data center and extending it to the cloud. Uh, and that company, uh, we went through a lot of the similar pain points um, uh, that we heard about earlier, uh, but ultimately uh, realized that the sales model we had wasn't going to work. And we started building some strategic relationships, which ultimately led to a, a quite a successful outcome with Verizon, which now actually they've almost tripled the size of the staff. And they've done a lot of great work with them. And in November, I hooked up with the uh, with a bunch of the team from SolidWorks, which is kind of scary because we're a lot older and a little grayer, and, but uh, we sense an opportunity. And I won't go into too many specifics about the opportunity uh, of what we're specifically doing, but I'll, I'll characterize the, the, the essence of, of kind of the opportunity in front of us. And that is the world in which we live and how people design products is changing. Uh, people like my age and a little bit older are starting to retire and, and younger generations coming in. So there's demographic shift. And the demographic shift is one where guys my generation sort of go to the internet, younger people live in the internet, and so they're in this hyper-connected world. And yet they come to companies that do design work, and they sort of see the CAD system in the corner, and it's this this system that basically everything's locked down. And so we believe there's a shift happening in terms of of how people work. We think there's a lot of market pressures, and 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 the design process is changing and we sense that how people build products is changing. The compute infrastructure has changed. The cloud is is clearly having a huge impact in how and what people do, and we think there's a business model opportunity. So those four forces converging create an opportunity at Belmont. It's a company that got funded by Michael's uh, firm, as well as Commonwealth Ventures, and we raised nine million in November. We started the company in November, and we raised nine million dollars, and then uh, just uh, April 1st, and it wasn't an April Fool's joke, uh, we ended up raising, uh, $25 million in a, a preemptive series B round. This gives us enough money to build our product, and get to market, and, and, and uh, hopefully along the way, um, in case we do stub our toe, have enough capital to kind of see us through. And I tell you, that's one of the experiences that, uh, that having a little bit of a, of, uh, of a failure, and I'll call it cloud switch, was a successful outcome, but one of the things we realized is that the market for cloud software was early when we started this and we faced a situation where capital was going to be a big issue for us if we didn't change our model and so with with uh... with belmont when the opportunity to raise more capital came in and it was at the right sort of terms we we decided to go ahead and do it enough about my background let's talk a little bit about what CAD is if you look around us all the products in our lives whether it was the coffee machine this morning that you used, whether it was a tablet that you picked up this morning your phone whether it was the the car that you got in to turn the clock, you know, the the radio in the car, whether it was these these whiteboards, the projectors, the cameras, all of these things are products that are designed. So to understand the CAD world, you have to step back and realize this is a big market. Why is it a big market? Because all of these products have to be designed. So think about it. Somebody, somebody in the world figured out the size of glass and the type of glass to use here, but also what the length of these rails should be, how it should be assembled. So when you think about even just this simple example, there's an engineer somewhere in the world that built an engineering model, designed that, created specifications, sent it to a manufacturer who had to build that. So look around your world and you realize this is a big market. This is a market that today represents over eight billion dollars in terms of software in four companies alone when you think about end user spend it's probably north of 10 billion dollars and what are these companies doing they're building software to help engineers make mistakes on the screen and not with the end product and that's the key insight is that allowing people to prototype and in, in a digital format it's far cheaper than to go ahead and build a product and actually create failure in the marketplace so that's the market that we focused on early on at SOLIDWORKS with some fundamental opportunities that we think were possible. So SOLIDWORKS 3D CAD system, let me give you a simple reason why SOLIDWORKS existed. Have people heard of parametric technology, PTC? Okay, Okay. I'll do a quick step back. Lines and arcs, people did mechanical engineering design with lines and arcs. Autodesk translated that, lines and arcs from drawing boards, into the computer. You had large companies that were doing on mainframes and mini computers. AutoCAD did that same functionality, but did it on a laptop. What people really would love to do, though, is not just put lines and arcs on the screen. They wanted to be able to see things in 3D. For young people like you, you can't imagine a world that wasn't 3D. But trust me, not too long ago, everything was done in 2D. So big companies like Computer Vision came around, and they allowed you to build 3D solid models. The biggest benefit of that was understanding how things fit together and making sure that things didn't interfere with each other. And car companies, airplane manufacturers, would spend millions, tens of millions of dollars for these systems. The problem was, if somebody designed a car and some, the, the, the design team designed it, everybody loved it and they came in and they said that's great but, but make it a little kind of wider here and a little bit longer, the guys in the white lab coats had to go back in redesign it and four, five, six months later they come out with a design. PTC did something phenomenal. There was a brilliant, brilliant guy by the name of Sam Geisberg, allowed these solid models to change. And this idea that you can make changes quickly and be able to see it, iterate, much like a spreadsheet, that allowed engineers to be able to have rapid design changes. That was value and they had incredible success because what their value proposition was we all know you love 3D solid models because you can see how things go together. The problem is you can't make changes. They allowed people to make changes. And they ate a fortune. They built an amazing enterprise. They had an amazing sales team and they had great technology. And so when we were starting SOLIDWORKS in the early days, people said, nobody needs another SOLID modeler. PTC owns the market. The problem was the following. There was a ton of people that had their noses up against the glass. They wanted what PTC had, but they couldn't afford it. It was too expensive, it was too hard to learn, too hard to use. That was fundamentally the value that we created at SOLIDWORKS. And today, it's a $600 million company. The question, and, and extremely profitable, generating close to almost a quarter of a billion dollars in profit each year. So the question is, how do you go? I mean, we knew there was opportunity. The question is, how do we go and capitalize on that opportunity? And I want to show four numbers. One five zero three. There were many reasons why SOLIDWORKS was successful, but I think fundamentally this is one of them. Anybody know what it is?
3: <laughs>
0: if you go to SOLIDWORKS today and ask anybody, it's, it's part of the culture. It's part of the DNA of the company. So I'm not going to go through a lot of hypothetical examples, I'm going to go through specifically How this impacted the company. I remember our first sales meeting. We were going to sell our software instead of $20,000, $30,000 through a direct sales force. We're going to sell our software at $4,000 and we're going to sell it through a VAR value added reseller channel, meaning independent people that would represent our product, they'd get it at a discount and sell it. So the question is when we got all these sales people together for the first time, these are different independent business people, maybe 250 people came to Waltham, Massachusetts, we had a meeting. and We had to tell them where should they go selling, where to go focus, because they thought our product was great. And we put this chart up. I didn't put the numbers there the first time, but guess what? If you look at the vertical axis, this is the number of seats, this is the number of engineers that we wanted people to sort of look at and focus when they're going out and trying to sell a product. And this is the sales cycle. And most of the people who were independent business people, they wanted to go and sell 20, 30 seats, 40 seats. I remember a guy coming to me from Detroit and saying, I have a really good friend inside of Ford. He runs Powertrain. And I know we can work with their data. I want to go sell them. Would you come out and visit with him? And I said, I hope you don't mind while you're selling at Ford if we had two other resellers in your backyard to go focus on the opportunities that you're not going to be focusing on. He wanted that upper left quadrant. Big opportunity. Well, guess what happens with the guy at Ford? They bring him in, and they love it. People want validation. They love it. This guy's selling, saying, this is awesome. The guy at Ford wants to buy our product. So he spends a little bit more time showing it to him, and the guy inside of Ford and Powertrain says, you know what? Our guys love it. The guys, actually in styling, they want to see it as well, so can you come back next week and show them product again? And all of a sudden, the sales cycle, instead of two months and three months, starts being four, five, six months. And the guys are like, "Well, we got to get some business closed." They said, "The good news is people really, really love it." And you know what we want to do? We want to do a pilot. We want to go ahead and buy your product, but instead of buying sixty seats, guess what? They ended up buying three. So what we wanted people to focus on is one to five seats, zero to three months. And that became known inside of SolidWorks as 1503, a 1503 account. Why was that so important? Because as that guy was selling, thinking he's going after 60 seat opportunity, if this is time, and this is real, this is losing money, this is making money, and these guys are massively sort of undercapitalized, they're out there selling, 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 thinking they're gonna get this big deal, gets extended out, gets extended out, and what ends up happening? They get a business, they get the PO, but it's for three, four, five seats, and they're losing money. And these are guys that can barely afford to make payroll. We wanted them quick hits, get out. It served our strategic interest to get into a lot of accounts. Yeah.
1: A lot of the sales guys use expected values. From expected value perspective, that would make sense because it's a big deal. And so, did you take that into account?
0: Sure. Most of these sales guys, most of those people who are thinking about expected value, they're probably sales guys that are making, what, 150, 200 grand a year? These sales guys were VARs. Their salespeople were probably making 65, 70 grand a year. We needed people to go out there and get quick hits, get into the account. And, and the most important thing was actually qualifying out accounts. So we didn't go for big strategic selling. We wanted to be like weeds popping up through the concrete. In fact, we tried to think, I was talking to John Herstick, who was a founder of SolidWorks just the other day, and he's with us at, at, at Belmont we were talking about it, kind of what was the perfect opportunity. And one of the perfect opportunities was not a 10-seat deal that had Pro Engineer. Remember, these are people with their noses stuck up against the the glass door wanting what what was inside, but they couldn't afford it. So it was not to go to an account that had 10 seats of Pro E and saying, let's go ahead and, and, and try and convince them to convert and switch over to us. Conversely, we didn't want them to go to 10 seats of 2D users, AutoCAD users, and try and have them all switch to SolidWorks because we would have had to go through and teach them all about 3D solid modeling, go through this long sales process, only to have them buy one or two seats. We called it the modeling saturation index, a really kind of nice, nice term. And what it was was we wanted them to have two or three seats of ProE that were exposed to 3D, but had eight seats of AutoCAD because they already knew the benefits of 3D by having those two seats there but we wanted them to get the advantage. Why didn't they have the other seats, eight seats, move to 3D? Well, probably because it's too hard to learn, too hard to use, and too expensive. Yeah?
3: Um, This this might be a question out of ignorance, but in thinking about sales cycles, and thinking about the more impactful sales versus the little but at volume, why wouldn't you have affiliate marketing channels or web channels selling this as opposed to People that you have to spend time and money on training, and likewise, how much of this was business development versus sales? Like this, almost sounds like an exploration in what is, what is the model of the sales versus order taking.
0: Great. So the first question is, why didn't we have affiliate marketing and web-based sales? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, contrary to what Al Gore said about the internet, I mean, <laughs> it didn't exist. No, no, it didn't exist. I'm, I mean, I'm being being a little cute here. I mean, in fact. When we started SolidWorks, we were having a decision about, and I know this is going to be in the way back time machine, but we had a debate, and I remember it being in the, in the order room, kind of the, the shipping room. We had, we had a debate whether or not we should have a website. And I know you can laugh, but we said, what would we put on the website? We said, well, we could put our address, directions, maybe some marketing materials. And then we all laughed because they said, you know, someday maybe people will download updates for our software. And we all cracked up laughing. And you know what? We were one of the first 100,000 websites registered in the world, okay? Now, why, why, would, why wouldn't you use affiliate marketing? Of course you'd use that today. But we had VARs. These are value-added resellers. These are businesses, independent businesses, that were selling other products already, selling consulting services, selling training. We needed these people, one, to survive. They didn't have a lot of capital. But two, they wanted to go out and expand their customer base, and we wanted them too. It was critical for us to go through get customers to try the product, use the product, get successful with the product, because we knew there would be viral adoption once people started using it. It would draw other customers into the this, into this solution.
2: Yeah? Uh, I was wondering, how do you figure out for a different business what is your 1503?
0: Well, we were lucky early on that we kind of got it right, but we knew, that we, we knew there was a tendency. The good news is we knew there was a tendency that people wanted to pull us up into higher accounts and larger accounts and we knew with our sales channel that we had and our price point, we couldn't afford to have a direct sales force going out and selling $4,000 software. So we knew we had to go through a VAR channel. That was part of our business model early on. And we knew that they would be attracted to try and go after the bigger accounts. So we had to intentionally force them to go smaller. One, because quite frankly, they weren't hiring the top talent that we needed. So we had it was an impedance match that we had to have with their skill set, their presence, and, and, and our ability to kind of message to them. So we had to keep it. Incredibly, incredibly simple. So it was just simply about kind of focus and, and re- repetition of message. Does that make sense? Um, so the benefits of this model: incredible predictability in terms of, of revenue stream. The question was, could we scale this? That was a big question. I, I just noticed Rich was back there, and he probably remembers the first board meeting. We had our revenue plan our first year. I think it was 3.8 million. We kind of upped it to to four million dollars, and And we had no idea what we were going to do. And we ended up doing something like 12.8, I think, in the first year. But it was all about sort of scaling, and keeping focus, and and having a repeatable process. Now, how did we know early on? We didn't. But we spent a lot of time with customers and with VARs in the early message. There was a lot of four-legged sales calls, our regional people going out with the VARs and doing sales calls to understand what the objections were. But it was all about kind of basically getting customers to adopt the product, get into production, And we knew that once they got into production, they'd start shipping files around that would create the viral nature of people trying to understand what our business was about. To give you an example about why this is important and about scaling a company, I just want to share one one point. We started growing the company, and 1503 was all about the predictability revenue stream. What turns out that this is a philosophy. We had to be able to take an order inside of the company, be able to process the order, get the product, ship it out to a customer, and be profitable be profitable with, with, at, at a $2,400 price net margin to us. Going a little bit further, when we scaled this up and we had to do an upgrade cycle, we we're shipping out boxes. These boxes had to be shipped, and they weighed 15.9 ounces. Why? Because it's 16 ounces UPS charged a higher freight weight. So this became a cultural mentality inside of the company in terms of execution. And the strategy was simple. Get inside of the account, land and expand. That's how we built the business. Did, this, did that mean we only went after small, small companies? No, as we grew and we grew the account base, we ended up getting to some significant accounts. I remember being on a panel with the CIO from EMC about selling to large accounts. I'm like, why the hell am I here? We, we, we never called on EMC at the high level. We ended up displacing pro-engineer at EMC, you know, several hundred seats. Why? We did it three, four seats at a time. And once we got to about 50, 100 seats, they had to deal with us. So that was our strategy. Let me just turn about some other practical things. We had an ecosystem inside of SOLIDWORKS. Michael talked about it before, in terms of whole product and core. One of the things we understood early on at SOLIDWORKS was we were gonna focus on core modeling, and we were gonna have partners do the rest. But we had to build a partner system to build applications on, time, on top of SOLIDWORKS. How did we do it? Well, first thing you gotta realize is Partners are interested in only one thing, your customers. But how do you get customers if you don't have any partner applications on top of it? We proposed a simple three-step process. First was this idea of kind of marketing cold fusion. It was all about getting credibility through numbers. How do we you know, create press releases, relationships? We had a very lightweight program early on about, quote, unquote, what a partner meant. Step two was about focusing on a few select partners in each vertical market. And in this case, we went through and we wanted to create some leaders. In the analysis world, there was a bunch of big vendors. They wouldn't give us the time of day. We chose the number three vendor and we said, we're going to make them number one in our space. So we went to each segment and picked a vendor and just through sheer force and kind of bear hugging them, we got them to build integrated applications. And once they started to get mind share in our channel and we got credibility and they started getting sales, the big guys had to follow. Leaders, you know, first was marketing cold fusion, leaders set the pace, and the third was that followers will follow. And the irony here is this, that the followers were actually the leaders in each of these categories.
3: So they school the IP. Yeah.
0: They did. We were a platform. We were a platform that they built on top of. I just want to share another kind of couple of thoughts that I know we're running late, late on time here. Meet your enemy. You're in a startup, the only advantage, the only advantage you have is time. That's the only advantage you have. You may have a clever idea, you may have some IP, but the install base guys have customers, they have capital, they have presence, they have a megaphone. The only thing you have is the calendar. You've got to be able to move quickly. So I have a saying, and it's something that I think is a cultural one I would share with you, events force actions. What did everybody do yesterday? Paid their taxes, right? Was that yesterday? (laughs) Why did you do that? Because if you don't, the government makes it really painful. They created that event on April 15th to make sure you paid your taxes. So events force actions, find ways inside of your company to go ahead and put deadlines. We used to have SOLIDWORKS World. We'd have 5,000 people come to an event. We'd do it once a year, and it costs us roughly $2 million inside of the company. And forget the fact that the benefit was we got these, you know, all the users together and they'd be these shaved head zealots that would go out and tell everybody about us afterwards and create all the energy. If you strip all that away and forget all the media exposure, if the only benefit that we got out of spending that $2 million as the company was growing was to get people together on one day and force decisions, it was hugely worth it because it forced people to align and make decisions. So this idea of putting deadlines and events is critical because it's reinforcing the only advantage that you have. The other point about this is we have a saying, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Early on, you just got to get your product done, get it out there, and iterate. I'll share a couple other thoughts, what you think versus what you know. Everybody tells you to beta test, beta test, beta test. Really, really important, far more important. If people aren't paying you for something, They'll tell you all day. We saw it at CloudSwitch. ton of people loved it, ton of people loved it. How many people would pay for it? And when they ended up paying for it, we ended up realizing they were paying for something very different. They were not paying for the product, they were paying for education. I'll share a couple, couple quick thoughts. We had a subscription service program inside of SOLIDWORKS. Today it's a $300 million business. I just want to share some insight about how we decided what to charge. How do you decide to price your product?
2: Or you can build it on what it costs, or you can figure out what the market's willing to pay for it. Okay. It, sounds, it sounds like you could bear a $2,400 price point on the other side, so it sounds like like $600 per.
0: So we went out and saw what other what the competitors were charging. The install base, up until the point when we started SolidWorks, there was no idea of subscription-based revenue. It's a shrink-wrap model, and the the large install base guys were charging list price and 18%. So that was kind of what the market was used to. So we went out and sort of said, okay, we know that we're gonna charge at least 18%. We have a lower price point. So the question is, what will we charge? And we thought about different price points. And then we also sort of looked at it and said, wait, we have to align not just what our interests are, in terms of what it costs, but also our VARs. Because we wanted our VARs to be able to go and support customers. So we had to align what their support model was along with what we wanted to make. So we went and started from the premise of what would a customer pay From a VAR perspective, how many people could they support? So we looked at the VAR profitability equation, that that internal sort of step between us and the customer, because we needed them to make customers successful. So we ended up saying, okay, they can handle this many customers in terms of calls. This is how many customers times whatever money, how much money do they need to make, and what would be our margin? So we started actually at the end user, worked to the middle, worked back to the end user, and came back. Point, Point is, it's not just about the money you want to receive, you've got to align each step in the process. I'll just share some other thoughts. We all talked about turning products into companies. I love this saying, it's easy to start a company, it's hard to build a business. At the end of the day, you are trying to build a company, but you're really trying to build a business. Events force actions, the perfect is the enemy of the good. One of the things that I think at SolidWorks today, I don't know, they have 1,000, 1,100 people inside of there, we have a small company. We have 17, 18 people. But we're starting with the same mantra, that the most important thing you can do is hire well. I think that's an incredibly important thing. Hire people that scare you with their competence. Salespeople, a couple insights. If you have a salesperson that says they don't really care about money, they're not a good salesperson. Fire them. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Salespeople work on two, two components. Reach behind their back and look for the coin slot. They are coin-operated. And if they're not, you are not going to be able to put the right incentives in place. Salespeople are motivated by money. If they're not, they're not good salespeople. They may be great people and they may be great marketing people, but if they're not motivated by money, they are not good salespeople. The other thing that motivates salespeople is recognition. If you've got a salesperson that is not concerned about how they stack up and rank versus other salespeople in your company, get rid of them. Salespeople are naturally aggressive and they're competitive. They want to make money and they're competitive. Those are the two drivers in salespeople. That's not to say they wouldn't be valuable for your company, but they're not going to be great salespeople. As CEOs or founders, the other thing that you're doing is you're creating a culture. I talked about 1503 as a strategy. It was about a culture. We had created a culture that every step in the way, we were going to make money in terms of being able to be efficient We also cared about customers that we didn't know the names of. That was a cultural thing. We built a company on the backs of companies that we never even knew the names on a broad basis. They're not companies that you would look at and have billboards and have logos and say, you know, Nike's using our product. Most of the people were suppliers to Nike's or mold shops. We were damn proud of what they did and we felt great about what those customers did and we celebrated their successes, but the point is we aligned the company consistently in terms of product pricing, product packaging, and, and, and culture throughout. Um, fundamentally, the last part I'd say is with all of the challenges, and I won't bore you with the cloud switch ones, we ran into some, some difficult times. But remember, uh, it really is about the journey. That's why most entrepreneurs do it. Most entrepreneurs start companies because they see the world and how the world should be. So as you're going through that journey, understand. That, yes, while success is great and money's great, the journey's also part of what's fun.
1: With that, I'll open up for any questions you may have. So, I mean, one of the things that you did there, which I I know is, you know, literally part of the legacy you left at, at SolidWorks, is you very early on established this culture of having a clear and consistent way that the product was sold, that was profitable. And you even created a disruptive business model, this whole subscription. Uh, plan, which many of you've heard me talk about that. In fact, I would say, if you'd agree, the subscription model was as important in many ways uh, in your success as anything else. It was game changing. So as the team looks, looking around this room, is, is thinking about starting up a company now, and you're, you're doing it yourself right now, what would be the one or two things you'd say, think about right up front in your product that will make a difference to enable profitable selling and a culture that is successful? So, like great, great question. So one of the things that
0: we, we learned really, I'd say, by chance, Um, we tried to figure out with our customer base, you know, what version of the software. So we weren't a SaaS-based application. People had to install our software. And so one of the challenges we had, I mean, up until we started, software companies didn't actually, when, when they went through distribution, they didn't necessarily know who their end user was. So by having a subscription service, we sold through VARs, but we demanded up front to know who the user was. Once we did that, we at least had a relationship with with those customers. But we didn't necessarily know what version people were on, and so we had this tool that we called a performance monitoring tool, very early on. And it was a little bit, kind of like a little nugget of software that was on on, on their PC. and would send back aggregate data. We would only look at it in aggregate. And we could see what version people were on. We could also see what different add-ins they had. So this idea of, of, of of analytics and measuring, we did it to solve a problem. It turns out it was a huge enabler for a business decision later on. So I'd like to say we designed it in the, in the beginning, but it was something we introduced kind of three versions into the product. But let me give you an example of what it did. Since we could figure out what version people were on, we also knew which applications they were using along with SolidWorks. And what we found is if you took the number of customers and on the y-axis, and the number of applications that they were using on the x-axis, it was a massive ski slope, meaning not many people were using more than two applications with SOLIDWORKS, and we could figure out which were the most popular applications. And these weren't ones that we wrote ourselves. These were partner applications. So we had this really long tail of people not having many applications, they trying one different application, or whatever else. So we had the opportunity, once we looked at that, we were fighting a price war with Autodesk. Autodesk had AutoCAD 2D and they bundled their 3D solution and they were undercutting us on price. And we realized that all the value of these applications were not being used by customers. And so we went out and started to find out why. Well, it turns out many of the VARs that were trying to sell these applications, it kind of wasn't worth their hassle to go back to a customer and sell a four or $500 application. What we said then is, okay, are there groups of these products that we can bundle together, you know, kind of use the oldest trick in the book, why? Because it worked. And we said, can we bundle and create SolidWorks, SolidWorks Office Professional and Office Premium? And we took these other applications that weren't really being used by people, we bundled them together, and in the middle of a price war with Autodesk, we took our price point from $4,000 for our base product to $5,400 to $7,500. And along the way, increased the subscription. So we created greater value for the end user, greater value than ours, and greater value for SolidWorks. And for those application partners, yes, on the marginal seat that they might have sold of a photo rendering product, they weren't going to get as much money. But I went back to each of them and said, look, you're only making 15 grand, 20 grand from us. How about if you give me a blanket license, we'll pay you 100 grand. And I went to a bunch of different technology suppliers, and we bundled all those together. And we raised our ASP by over 50% in the middle of a price war with our biggest competitor and we grew our volume, you know, commensurate. I mean, it was tremendous. You would normally think by raising your price in a price where we'd see diminished volumes, we actually grew it tremendously. So, and once we did that, when new entrants came in, we had a higher subscription revenue base. So it was defensible. So when people came in with other products and wanted to get our VAR channel to join them and take, take their product on, there were some VAR's owners, these are small businesses, They were waking up on January 1st, and they had a subscription business of a million and a half to $2 million. They weren't going to go to a competitor, so we built in kind of a, a, a barrier for people stealing our channel. And that all came about by accident in terms of analytics. So the idea of understanding early on what's happening can pay huge dividends later on. I'd like to say we had the genius to figure it out early, we didn't, but we soon capitalized on it. Yeah? Uh,
3: So, you kind of touched on this, but I'm curious, which do you find more valuable both in the early stage and as you grew, the data behind the product or the product itself?
0: Great question, the data behind the product or the product itself. So, the product itself was an amazing product, let's be really clear. The team built an amazing product and it only got better. The question we tried to do is, We had many, people were using this product and they were building, for example, pneumatic cylinders. Okay, Festo is a large German conglomerate that builds pneumatic cylinders. You go through a factory, you can hear all the, you know, these are all things that are cylinders moving things down a factory line. So Festo used SolidWorks. And so we had this great idea, you know, all these people that are building bearings, that are building motors, that are building fasteners, can we take that? and and create a business of either selling content. So we created a website to allow people to download content in 3D and use it. And we went off then and said, can we create a publishing solution? Because all of these manufacturers that made bearings and motors and everything else had to create catalogs, and they were creating paper catalogs. And we said, look, you're using SOLIDWORKS already. Why don't you go and create a 3D electronic catalog? So we built a whole business around doing that. And guess what? We failed miserably. You know why? One simple thing, we thought because we know Festo and we had relationships with the engineering team, we thought we had a relationship with that customer. And here's where if we had done something fundamentally different, we could have been successful in it. I thought, and I'll take responsibility for it, I thought we have a relationship with that customer. Why can't our team go and sell it to the marketing team inside of that company? Guess what? I should have treated it as a completely separate company. Because it turns out the engineering people didn't even know the marketing people in these companies. And oh, by the way, I shouldn't have used our sales team. I should have gone out and hired media sales people to go after that opportunity. So it was, whether it was, you know, kind of just arrogance, I don't know. I thought we had a relationship with that customer and I thought that would transfer over into the marketing department because they had the data. Flawed assumption. And we, after three years, you know, of spending a lot of money and a lot of time, we kind of finally realized that and, and made a little bit of a business of it, but it was a real you know, um, insight.
3: Even knowing that, do you, is then the answer that the data is not as valuable as the product? Or is it that the data is only as valuable as you leverage it?
0: We tried to leverage it and we did a poor job of it. I still think the value, I think that the data, um, I think fundamentally, the data could have been far more valuable than we, than we were able to take advantage of it. But no, the business, let's be clear, the business was building CAD software and support. That's, you know, that's where 600 million, you know, billions of dollars of end user and billions of dollars of market value was created by solving a design problem. The content, I think, could have been used far more strategically and we, we screwed up on it.
1: So just because of time, I'm gonna give everybody a chance to chat with John afterwards, but I wanna wrap up. Um, I want to say thank you very much, John, that was just outstanding. Um, there are so many points John brought out, it's probably going to be difficult to, to summarize them, but I will just uh, highlight a couple that I think you, know, you can find very actionably. He highlighted analytics, which you talked about in Slippery Product, is one of the things I really am a big believer in. You can build that in early, it can help you with your justifications, with your, you know, your uh, proof of ROI, et cetera. Um, And I think one of the big things that we, you know, heard from John here is how he really focused on building something between the product and the company, which is this go-to-market methodology that become became a a piece of the culture that really enabled the company to be successful. And uh, if you go back to that roadmap that I was talking about, this is where I think if you took nothing else away from tonight you really have to spend time to think about when you're building your feature, your product, or hopefully ultimately your solution, you're thinking all the way along the line about What is it that you're doing to serve that marketplace and how do you reach them in a profitable way that can become repeatable and scalable to build a company? And I know it sounds simple, but 1503 was that. And it's why John's company actually was able to get scale because it was reduced to such a simple level that even a $60,000 sales guy in a VAR could carry that message and could effectively execute on it repeatedly over and over again to scale that business. And that's the kind of formula that I want you to hear tonight from somebody who's built a $600 million business out of it because it had nothing to do with the technology in the end although the technology was critical at the beginning and John is nodding here I can trust me we as investors here were very proud to see this but it is a lesson for all of us to take away it's about figuring out how to work this roadmap beyond just the product and technology it's why also I started up front pointing out that a small piece of the p l is really the R&D so much of it is on this go-to-market sales and marketing And there's more on the website on that. And I want to take a moment just to again thank Greg and John very much for making our evening this evening. Thank you very much.